Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We have covered four of the messages that Jesus gave to the seven churches thus far. Um, you know, when we looked at these churches, some of them, you know, just needed encouragement, like Smyrna. They were going through it persecution-wise. They just needed encouragement, weren't doing anything wrong. Uh, some of these churches, they needed correction. They needed to repent. And, uh, and so, you know, the Lord dealt with those things. But as we begin chapter 3 and we move to the church of Sardis, uh, we're going to cover the first of two churches that get no commendation from Jesus. There's nothing positive that he says about what they're doing. Now, you might be thinking, if you've been coming, you're like, man, Pergamos, they had some serious issues. And Thyatira, that was, that was crazy what was going on there. You might be thinking, you know, how is it possible that Jesus would have good things to say to them, but nothing good to say about Sardis when those awful things were going on? Well, the difference is that Pergamos and Thyatira had lots of solid believers and a few bad apples. Sardis had a lot of compromised believers and only a few faithful ones. And so, you know, Jesus came to give us an abundant life. That, that should be the characteristic of a church, of our, uh, of our Christian lives. So, so let's purpose to not be like Sardis, but to live life on that higher level that Jesus bought for us. So chapter 3, we begin in verse 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you are, live, and you are dead. So here we see Jesus does not waste any time in dealing with the problem that's there in the church at Sardis. Now, if we can put the map up there just real quick so you can see where Sardis is. Sardis is located about 30 miles south of Thyatira. It's the church right in the middle of all those circles. Um, Sardis was the ancient capital of the kingdom of Lydia. Um, it had an impressive Acropolis that overlooked the plain where the main city was situated. Um, so at a distance, you would think it looked pretty impressive. On the Acropolis, it contained a very large temple to Artemis, the goddess of love and fertility, and that made the city of Sardis a place of debauchery and immorality. Um, however, if you got closer to the city, you would see that it was impressive only from a distance. In fact, one historian called Sardis the city of death because of the apathetic but wealthy inhabitants who lived in luxury and immorality and just continued like it was the city of the high life despite the fact that the cities had declined and really wasn't important anymore. And so Jesus, he says, unto the angel, the leader there at the church at Sardis, he uh, says, write these things. These things says he that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, this message follows the format of all the messages. It starts off by Jesus describing something about himself. Then he would either give a condemnation and correction or just a condemnation or just a correction, or a commendation or just a correction. And then after he did that, he would give them a promise for those who would, you know, listen to him and, and continue faithfully till the end. So the letter, this message follows the same format. He starts off with that description of his character. He says, these things says he that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, Remember in chapter 1, John had a vision of Jesus, and he did see Jesus holding the seven stars in his right hand, but he didn't see anything about the seven spirits of God. Now that phrase, though, was mentioned in verses, uh, verse 4 of chapter 1, where John is describing who the letter's from. It's from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he mentions that the Holy Spirit, these seven spirits which are before God the, God the Father's throne. And so 
What does it mean when we say the seven spirits of God? We're going to see it again in Revelation chapter 5 and 6. So uh, the best I think we can understand from this is from Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2 where it describes the ministry of the Messiah and in describing the ministry of the Messiah it mentions that these seven spirits would be upon him. It says in Isaiah 11, 2, and the spirit of the Lord, number one, shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, that's two and three, the spirit of counsel and might, that's four and five, and then the spirit of the knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, that's six and seven. And so the idea is that the full work of the Holy Spirit, all of the ministry of the Holy Spirit will be upon the Messiah. I think that's the best way we can understand that because we know there's not seven Holy Spirits. There's one Holy Spirit. So, you know, how is that different then from the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives? Well, for example, I can say, follow me as I follow Jesus, right? But only Jesus can simply say, follow me, right? Like the idea of follow me as I follow Christ means if I stop following Christ, stop following me. But Jesus will never lead you astray. You can always follow him. You can always trust him. He can say, follow me. Because he, as John said about him in John chapter 3, God does not give the spirit by measure unto him, you know. Jesus is perfect in all of his ways and all of his motives and all of his attitudes and, and all of his works. You know, you, you can always trust that he is operating under the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, in how he functioned when he was here on the earth. You know, he is the epitome of what a man is supposed to be, what a person is supposed to be, led by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit, submitted to the Holy Spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, everything he did, he said, I don't do it of my own will. He said, I don't do it of my own, my own direction. He said, my Father tells me to do it, I do it. My Father tells me to say it, I say it. You know, everything Jesus did was exactly as a man or a woman should do it, and that's because he was led by the Spirit in every way. So he is someone that can be trusted and his way is always the best way. He's reminding them of that. He's also reminding them of that he's the one that has the seven stars. Now the seven stars were, it says, those messengers, that's what the word angel means, it just means messenger, the messengers of these churches. These church leaders is what most people believe that refers to. And so he's saying, you know, I hold you to the messenger of the church at Sardis, the leader of the church at Sardis, maybe the senior pastor. He's saying, I hold you in my hand just like I hold every other leader in my hand. You know, no leader, church leader ever need fear because Jesus always has them in his hand, you know, and no one can pluck them out of his hand. And that's why there's nothing to be afraid of when the Lord corrects you, you know. The Lord holds you in his hand because you're part of his church, so he's got you in his hand as well. And there's never anything to be afraid of when the Lord corrects you. You know, I, I see some people sometimes, you know, when, when I will maybe say, hey, you know, I, the Lord kind of put this on my heart because I saw how you're operating with your spouse or with your kids or this, you know, and it's not right, you, you, you know, you, you need to work on this. And they get all offended. And it's like, why would you get offended by that? You know, I didn't come and tell you you're a loser and God doesn't love you and, you know, you're the spawn of hell, you know. I told you something that you already know, should know is true. You're not there yet. So we have nothing to fear when the Lord corrects us. In fact, the Bible says we should be, you know, be thankful the Lord corrects us because the Lord corrects those that are his. He doesn't correct those that are his. You know, I don't go around disciplining other people's kids. You know, I don't walk up to your kid and go, you're grounded for a week. I would never do that. Do that with my kids. And the Lord does it with his kids too. And so that's how you, part of the way you know you're his kid. So you never have anything to fear. He, he's not telling you these things because he's getting ready to drop you out of his hand or he's getting ready to throw you out of his hand to kick you to the curb. 
you're always in his hand still even as he's correcting you. But I think it also means that no church leader is on their own or gets to do their own thing, you know? Jesus, he's in charge of the church. You know, he holds every leader in his hand and he knows what's really going on. And so when he comes and he says, hey, this needs to change, leaders need to pay attention to that. You know, I, I, I'm grateful for the position I have and I understand the responsibility I have as a, a pastor of a church. Um, I take that very seriously. Um, but I also recognize Jesus is the head of the church, not me. You know, he's the one that when you're going through it, that's the person you need, not me. <laughs> you know, you need to run to him. I can help point the way. That's my job is to point the way to the head, you know, but you need to go run to him. He's your life. He's your hope. He's, he's all your joy. He's all your strength, you know. He's everything you need. And so a church leader needs to follow his leadership, needs to be humble when he corrects. Now, like Thyatira, there were things in the church at Sardis that they were not as they appeared to be. Unlike Thyatira, though, Jesus does not have, any, have anything to commend them for, nothing good to praise them for. And so he says, I know your works. He said that to every other church so far, but usually it then followed the good things. Jesus has nothing to commend. He says, I know your works, and this is what the problem with that, because you have a name that you live, and you're dead. Now, the idea here is I know what you're working at, and it's not the right thing. This church worked hard at keeping a reputation that wasn't true. That's what the word that you have, a phrase that you have a name means. The phrase you have a name means that which is said about a person when then people examine their conduct. You know, you know, if someone came to me and said, oh, Will, you're this, you know, they would probably arrive at that conclusion from looking at my conduct. You know, uh, you're wise, you're brave, you're handsome, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know. Um, but, but the idea here is that, you know, they were, people observed the church of Sardis and, and they had a, a good name. They thought, man, the things are going on there. That the idea is that they live. The phrase there literally means that they are growing or improving in life, you know, that they are, they're heading in the right direction. You know, that was their reputation. Man, you want to know what life is like, go to the church of Sardis, you know, like, like there's that worship song, this is living now. That, that was Sardis's theme song. Like when you came into church, that was blasting over the speakers, you know, you want to know how to live, come here. That was their reputation. That's what everyone thought about them. But Jesus says the truth is, you're dead. One translator um, said it, it should be this way. You're not improving in life. You're rapidly dying. That's what the phrase are dead means. It means continually lifeless and therefore ineffective. People looked at the church uh, and what they were doing, the church that Sardis was doing, and they thought, man, that group's going somewhere. They're full of life. But in reality, the church was in rapid decline. They were ineffective. They weren't changing lives at all. And yet everybody in the city loved them. They thought it was great. Now, what's crazy about that is that's the exact opposite of how the scriptures describe church should be as far as a societal influence goes. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. About 50 pages left. Maybe a little less if you got small print. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul is making a defense of his ministry. The church at Corinth, who he had had a massive impact on, pastored there for three years before turning it over to someone else and then moving on. He, he had still had influence in their lives, wrote 1 Corinthians. But 
there came a bunch of people along saying, I oh, don't listen to Paul. He's old news, man. You know, he's old news. You know, there's, there's better pastors out there, better preachers out there, better guys you should be listening to. And so Paul writes to them and he's trying to explain. He's like, okay, you know, I, I've, got, I've poured my life into you guys. I've told you the truth. There's no new thing. And so as he's taught them all these things in chapter six, verse one, now he calls them to follow in his footsteps. He says, we then as workers together with him beseech you that you also receive uh, not the grace of God in vain. Listen, everything we shared with you is by the grace of God and the work that he did in our lives. We pass that work on to you. So now we're asking you to pass that work on to others. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. You know, become like us in that sense. So verse three, giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed. You know, I'm not your pastor anymore, but you guys need to continue in the legacy I left with you. Don't, you know, conduct yourself in such a way that the ministry doesn't come under critique, doesn't come under just criticism, you know? Instead of giving offense in all things, approve yourselves as the ministers of God, that you're God's servants, that you're not ripping people off, that you don't have your own agenda, that it's not about you, it's about serving others. How do you do that? Well, he makes this long list. But then he describes the church in verse 9 like this. And it's crazy because it's, it's the exact opposite of Sardis. He says, as unknown, yet well-known. As dying, and behold, we live. As chastened and not killed. The Christians in Sardis, they weren't unknown. Everybody there knew them. Everybody wanted the life that they had. <laughs> They weren't dying. They were living it up. And they weren't chastened. No one looked at them and, and thought, oh, you know, you Christians, you know, you're always, you're always trying to be different. You never go with, the, go with the flow. You always critique everything everybody does. No, everybody was on board. And when the world thinks that way about the church, something is not right. Now, don't get me wrong. People should see our good works and glorify God. Matthew 5.16 is clear about that. They should also feel ashamed when they persecute us because our godly character shines through. 1 Peter 3.16. But the Christian life should never look like a beer commercial where you've got the dude who's just kicking back and living it up and he is living the life, you know, that it, you want to be like that guy. That should never be the Christian life. It should never look like that. That the world envies us because what we do is the pinnacle of living it up, your best life now. Now, the only way Sardis could have that kind of reputation in Sardis but be in rapid decline spiritually is through having far more in common with the world than with the Lord. Because if the world's not frustrated by them or convicted by them, that means they have more in common with them than they do with Jesus. And so in Revelation chapter 3, verse 2, the Lord says this. This is his correction. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Now, be watchful is really mild. In the original language, it means wake up. Wake up and stay awake. That's, it means you must become vigilant in your lives each day. Wake up and stay awake. See, there had come to a point where they had just fallen asleep. Where no longer when they, you know, you know when someone would say something like, hey, there's a big, huge festival down at the, the temple of Artemis. You know, there's going to be girls. There's going to be a party. It's going to be food. You know, and they're just going, where do I sign up, man? 
There wasn't even conviction anymore. There wasn't even any thought of not attending. There wasn't any thought of, you know, of that we don't belong there, you know? There's been a couple times in my life, you know, that I've been in a place, and I remember thinking to myself, I do not belong here. I'm a Christian, you know? I do not belong here, and I got out, you know? But there was also a time in my very young Christian life that I remember confiding into a friend, and I said, I'm worried because I'm doing some things I know displease the Lord, but I'm not even convicted anymore. That's where Sardis was, you know? That's where they were. And when you're there, the only solution to that is to wake up and start going in the opposite direction. It's the only solution. So Jesus says, wake up, stay awake, and strengthen the things which remain. The phrase there, strength, which are ready to die, uh, which are about to die, um, is what that means. Strengthen is a a strange phrase there in, in, in the Greek. It means you must become more unchanging in your attitudes and beliefs. In, in other words, what had happened in, in Sardis was, it didn't start this way. It's not that they got saved and thought, yay, you know, we can have Jesus and we can have our, our sex parties and all these other things too. Great, let's go to Artemis' temple. That wasn't how it started. How it started was, oh, we love Jesus. We love his word. We'll see this in a minute. We, we, want, we want to follow him. But over time, that had taken less priority. Their, their standards had taken less priority in their life, and, and they kind of just got sleepy with those things. And so over time, they just started sliding in the wrong direction to the point where there wasn't a whole lot of standards left. So the Lord says, the way you fix that is, first off, you have to wake up, recognize you're sliding down, down into a pit. You need to wake up and stay awake. And then you must firm up, become more unchanging in your attitudes and beliefs. It's not, it's not about going, well, you know, I don't want to be legalistic. No, no, man. You need to get right, you know, in that point in time. You need to firm it up. You know, this is what I believe. This is what God says, and that's it. There can be no wiggle room or compromise with those things. That's the only way you start moving in the right direction again. Sardis had some areas that hadn't been compromised, and they needed to start with those things. Those things needed to be firmed up. Those must become an an immovable foundation so they could begin taking back the ground that they'd given up through the compromise. That's what the Lord tells them. I have not found your works perfect before God. Now, the word they're perfect, it's passive, so it means I have not found your works to be perfected. In other words, the action is done to you. Um, It means to be totaled or made complete. God started a genuine, beautiful work in the city of Sardis. People got saved, a church was born. But the congregation, for the most part, hadn't gone on to maturity. That's what that means, the idea of being perfected, you know? When we get saved, the moment you get saved, all right, you are, what the Bible says, justified. It means to be declared righteous. God wipes away all your sin. He gives you the righteousness of Christ. You stand clean before him, and and you you are his forever, amen? Beautiful blessing, the moment we get saved. But in addition to that, God begins a work called sanctification, Sanctify means to set apart or to dedicate or to consecrate. And that's what God begins to do. He begins to make us more like him. And the Bible talks about how that happens. It says, as we get to know Jesus better, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, we as beholding the Lord in a mirror, as we behold him by the spirit of the Lord, we're made more like the Lord. 
So our work of sanctification, the work of sanctification that God does in our lives is as we are getting to know him, that's our part, you know, as we are reading the word, applying it to our lives, we are getting to know Jesus better and deepening our relationship with him, the Holy Spirit changes us supernaturally and makes us more like Jesus. So we have a part to play and God has a part to play. And and the problem is, is God's a gentleman. So if I'm not going to be yielded to him, if I'm not going to look at him and get to know him better, then guess what's going to happen? I'm not going to become more like Christ. So what Jesus is saying is that, you know, you've been busy, busy, busy. You know, you put out a good product. All the unbelievers in the city, they envy what you have. But I'm trying to do a work of my spirit in your lives, and you're not letting me. You are resisting that work. You're grieving the Holy Spirit right now. And so there was very little supernatural involvement in their church. Very little work of the Spirit. And it was rapidly getting worse. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you you find yourself in a similar spot. You know, you, you've prayed the prayer to receive Christ and you still believe every bit of it. You've, I, I do, I have repented of my sins. I, I have trusted Christ as my Savior. He is the Son of God. I believe that with all my heart. You have a decent life. For the most part, you're happy, but something's missing. You don't sense a closeness with the Lord. You don't have much of a burden for the unsaved. Your life revolves around a lot of unspiritual things and you're not seeing much, if any, supernatural working in your marriage, in your parenting, or your church experience. If, if that's you this morning, then it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. And it's time to solidify what hasn't died yet so you can start moving in the right direction. Now, how does one do that? You know, when you say, okay, I, I, I need to wake up. I'm going to wake up. Now what? What do I do? How do I start moving in the right direction? Well, verse 3 he tells them, therefore, In light of what I've told you you need to fix, here's how you fix it. Therefore, remember how you have received and heard and hold fast and repent. So remember, this is in the present tense in the original language, which means it's not just a one-time recall. It means you need to keep this in your mind. You need to stay here. This is where your mindset needs to stay. And where does it need to stay? How you have received and how you have heard. Now, Received is in the perfect tense, which means it's something permanent that has uh, ramifications on into the future. So remember how something permanent happened in your life. And then secondly, the word heard here is actually just a snapshot, how you did hear, how your attitude was in that moment when that thing was permanently put into your life. That's what that word received means. It means to permanently deposit something in you, you know? permanently deposit something in you. Um, You know, when God made me, he breathed the breath of life into me, and I became a living soul. It was something that was placed into my life permanently. Something else was placed into my life, deposited in my life when I received the gospel. So you need to remember what that thing was and how you received it, number two, in that moment. So to understand what that is, we need to identify those two things. What was deposited? What did Jesus give to us when we received him? And what was the right attitude we had when we received that deposit? Well, our answer is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Because Paul describes how they got saved and how thankful he was for their heart in that moment. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. 
Now, what I love about the scripture, how you can always know the Bible is the word of God, is you have things that are mentioned by different people that sometimes didn't even cross paths. Sometimes they weren't even alive at the same time. And they say the same exact thing. That's how you can know it's from the Lord, you know? And this is one of the examples here where Paul, he, he's not involved with John's ministry. John had a very different ministry than Paul. We have no record of them ever crossing paths in how they did ministry. And yet they're saying the same exact things than, that John did. And so here we see Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. He is, he's talking about how when they came to, the, to minister there in Thessalonia, they did it with a pure heart and they gave him the word of God. And then it, they t- he talks about how thankful he was how they received their ministry. Verse 13. For this cause also do we thank God without ceasing. Why? Because when you receive the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, as it is in reality. It's the word of God, which effectively works also in you that believe. So what is the deposit? It's God's word. Paul tells Timothy about this. When he's about to die, he says, Timothy, I know whom I believed, and I know he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I, he had deposited something in me, and I've been faithful with it to this moment. I'm going home soon. Now, Timothy says, that thing which was faithfully deposited in you, go put it in others. It's the word of God. And so here, Paul says, you know, we're so thankful because when you receive the word of God, that is the deposit, you didn't receive it as our words, but you received what it really was. It was, that was God's very words. So the deposit is God's word, and the right attitude is to let it have that authoritative place in your life, you know? To apply it practically, to give it the the high place of honor in your life that it deserves. You see, Sardis did a lot of Christian things, but Scripture no longer had that place of honor, no longer had that place of authority in their lives. And when Scripture doesn't have that type of authority in my life, I don't live it out. You know, when I used to go, when I was a very young pastor, I would go look for commentaries in a Christian bookstore, like a brick-and-mortar bookstore. You know, they, they actually had those back then. And I realize these days, you know, bookstores are not common things anywhere. You know, the, the, most bookstores you even go to, they don't even have that many books. They've got all this other par- paraphernalia. But I would go into the Christian bookstore because I could find all the good commentaries there and I could pick the ones, you know, that I, I was studying and what I could get. I remember the first time I walked in and I, I couldn't find the commentary section. It had been replaced by now the new largest section in the Christian bookstore, the self-help section. Why is that? Very simple. You have things in a store because they sell. And when they stop selling, you have to find things that are selling. Otherwise, you don't have a store anymore. This is what was most popular. These are the things people wanted. They didn't want the Word of God. They didn't want explanations about the Word of God. They wanted someone's thoughts about Christian ideas. And, 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 and it changed. And, and to this day, you know, I, I find people, you know... It, Please don't be offended by this. But I know people who've read all sorts of books that have nothing to do with Scripture. Oh, they might have springboard Scriptures on there. You know what that is, right? You ever seen, you know, skydive pastors? Skydive pastors. It's exciting, man. They're jumping out of an airplane. And the airplane is, you know, whatever Scripture they start with, all right? And so they might have a verse or they might have a Bible open, but they never go back to it because that's just a starting point to do what they want to do. 
show you how much they can spin and twirl around and I'm falling, you know? That is not the job of, of the, the church leader. It's not the job of the Christian. I don't have, if you haven't figured this out yet, I don't have anything to offer you. Like my wisdom, my opinions, they are not of high value. But Jesus has everything to offer you. His word is life. It's truth. It's reality. You know, it's, it's where I can wade through all the nonsense that's out there, all the noise that's out there, and I can just kind of zero in and go, what's real right now, Lord? What's true? And Sardis had lost that. And as a result, Sardis became the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. They could do charity and community with the best of them. And the only difference between them and anyone else was the label. You see, Jesus was an inspirational figure behind Sardis's soup kitchen or, you know, outreaches. Jesus wasn't a savior from the sin that dominated the lives of those in their city. Jesus' words, they were enlightened thinking, not the very breath of God. But it hadn't always been that way in Sardis. In fact, if you ask them what they believed, I, I imagine they'd be horrified that you would even make such an accusation like Jesus makes here. They would say, how dare you? Our statement of faith is it's just like Ephesus. It's just like Smyrna. It, it's just like every other church that Jesus writes to here. But Jesus knew that what they held to intellectually had slipped away practically. And if that describes your current faith, you know, you believe all the right things, but practically they don't, it doesn't really impact how you live, how you do marriage, how you do family, how you do work. Well, then you must decide to repent and cling to the reverence you used to have when it came to reading your Bible and living it out. Listen, I'm not saying we walk around in fear every day, but I know there's a reason I came down to the altar and it's I didn't want to go to hell. I wanted to be saved. I wanted to be rescued from my sin. I didn't want to be who I was anymore. So why would I all of a sudden now think it's okay who I am? <laughs> and it's okay to just do my own thing. I still need the Lord every day. He's still rescuing me every day. And so if you're in this place, you need to, Go back to that. Remember. And, you know, he says, remember and re receive again those, you know, that, that, that mindset, that attitude toward the word of God. And then hold fast and repent. The word there, hold fast, means you need to keep on retaining this. It's not just a one-time thing. Remember, repent, and retain what you're remembering. Now, that requires honesty with yourself, right? I mean, it does. It requires you to go, okay, Lord, hit me with your best shot. That's one of the reasons church is so important, by the way. You know, I'm so saddened when you hear the reports that 31% of Christians have not returned, of, in the United States, have not returned to church in any form. That includes online. 31% through this pandemic have not returned. That saddens me. We need this. The reason I go to like pastor's conferences and stuff is because I'm, when I do that, when you showed up today, you may not have known this, but when you showed up today, you said, hit me with your best shot, Lord. I want to hear from you. I mean, I hope so. I hope, hope you're not here for me. That's not entertaining at all. But 
you came because you wanted to hear from the Lord, right? I mean, I hope so. And every time I come to an environment like this, I'm saying, God, hit me with your best shot. I, I, want, I need to hear from you, even if it's, it's going to be hard to hear. And there have been times like that. Times I've wept before the Lord because I just, I was like, God, what is wrong with me? You know, I, I, why, why do I have to hear that? It requires honesty with yourself. It requires humility. I think if there's anything that I've seen in the current climate that disturbs me the most, that I think is one of the greatest obstacles to both people getting saved and to Christians growing in their faith is arrogance. We prize arrogance for some reason in our culture right now. We prize it in the church for some reason. God hates an arrogant look. And when I look at a situation and I see God's word, he says this, but I look and I assess the situation, I go, yeah, but I just do not see it this way, and I think God's wrong. I, I realize it's hard to put your brain in check. I realize it, and I'm not telling your brain, it just needed to rewire it. I realize it's hard to see that you look at everything out there that you, that, that you can envision and to believe that you're not coming to an accurate conclusion based on all the knowledge you have. But there is such a deep arrogance to that that thinks you can do that. To receive correction, to, to, to be able to remember, you know, uh, repent and then retain, it requires honesty and humility. And it also requires discipline to keep on keeping on. This wasn't a one-time thing that Sardis needed to do. They needed to change the way they did life. Now, it also requires not throwing a pity party. I know it's easy to hear what I'm saying because this is not a fun message. It's not a happy message. It's easy to think, oh, I'm a bad Christian. I'll never get it right. I know I've been there. But here's the truth. You will get it right because Jesus promises that he will finish what he started in you. He promised it. So don't throw a pity party, you know? Someday he's going to present you faultless before his throne with great joy. Instead, take your medicine and get better. Take your medicine and get better. Because if you don't, there are consequences. And I got I to finish this up a half a message in about five minutes. He says, where am I? Three, verse halfway through three. If therefore... You shall not watch. If you will not wake up, I will come on you as a thief and you shall not know what hour I will come upon you. Now, sadly, Jesus uses the word for the third class conditional clause, which is one of probability, which means they might wake up, they might not wake up. How sad. Jesus knows some of them aren't gonna wake up. He says, if you don't wake up, I will come on you like a thief. Now, that phrase, Jesus coming like a thief, it's found two other places in Scripture. In Revelation 16, 15, where the Lord says this. He says, behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches and that keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Isn't that what Jesus told us? Blessed is he that wakes up, right? Wake up. He says, if you don't wake up, well, then I'm going to come like a thief. Behold, I come like a thief. The one who doesn't experience that is the one who is 
watching, who's waking up and has, has you know, kept his garments. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, Jesus says the same thing. He says, I'm coming like a thief, but not for you. You know, I'm not coming like a thief for you. You are the children of the light, the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. The Lord says, I will not be a thief in the night to those who, who are mine, you know. So be like who you are, you know. Both of these scriptures refer to watching, being awake. Jesus, his return, it can't be like a thief for them because Jesus is taking what rightfully belongs to him. We're his bride, right? He's not stealing anything. But for the unbeliever, the churched unbeliever, Jesus' return will be a shocker because they'll be left behind. They'll think, well, but I'm involved in the community. I'm involved in church. I'm a good person. Why didn't you take me? Jesus says, don't let that happen to you. Many in Sardis needed to return to Jesus, but some weren't even born again. They were simply churched. And what's sad is that you could have a church like Sardis where a bunch of people were in it that weren't saved. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're here and you're not a believer today, we're glad you're here. Um, you know, if you're seeking this Bible stuff and Jesus stuff, you want to learn more, please keep coming. That's not my point. But, you know, we don't have people that aren't believers teaching our kids. You know, we don't have, I, I believe, <laughs> right? I'm not up here as an unbeliever. I'm here as a believer trying to convince you to trust the Lord too. So the idea is you had a bunch of people here who were not just seeking or not just, you know, you know trying to learn because they, they, they were interested. They were folks who were part of the church. They were serving in the church and they weren't even born again. And thus, this message from Jesus won't resonate with them because they've never repented of their sins. They've never trusted Christ as their Savior. You know, if you're here this morning or listening online, you know, and, but you're tuning out my words, that should concern you. That should concern you. Because even if the preacher isn't particularly good, the good shepherd is always speaking to his sheep when Scripture's involved. And I'm talking about Scripture today. I'm not, I'm not trust me, I, I'm not here just given my spiel, trying to teach the Bible. Even if I'm not doing a good job, the good shepherd's still speaking because it's his word. Now, as you can imagine, while this may not be as horrifyingly shocking as what Thyatira found out about, um, it's still not good. I mean, could you imagine being one of the few solid Christians in Sardis? You love God's word and you hear this? My church is full of unbelievers be very discouraging. And so Jesus has some encouragement for them in verse 4. He says, you have a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Um, the word there, I love it. He says you have a few names because you would normally think you would say you have a few people. And it does mean persons, but the idea is they said they had a name in the city. The city looked up at the church of Sardis and said, man, that's a class A, class A nonprofit organization in the community of Sardis. And Jesus is going, you have a few people there and Sardis doesn't know their names, but I do. I know, I know your name. And he says they have not defiled, they have not stained or dirtied their garments. Revelation 19.8 describes our garments as Christians as our righteous deeds. 
You see, many Sardis Christians had stained their witness for Christ. They'd made their witness for Christ confusing because of their sinful lives. The gospel didn't make sense because of their sinful lives. They made it sound like the only difference for a believer is that, well, we do good things in Jesus' name and you do your good things in Zeus or, you know, Athena's name. And these Sardis Christians' marriages, their family life, their personal lives lack the transformative work of God's Spirit. These Christians were just as much slaves to immorality, apathy, and luxury as everyone else in the city. But these guys, they were different. They hadn't confused that. They hadn't stained their garments. For them, Jesus has no correction. He just gives them a promise of being as close as you can be to Jesus forever. He says that they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Listen, if you are, the Bible's a regular part of your life, if, if you're living in the power of God's spirit right now, it can be very discouraging when you see other believers who don't share that passion. You know, it can be very discouraging when you go on Facebook and the same person, you know, is saying, isn't the Lord so good? And then, you know, the very next post or two posts down or bleepity bleep in some group here, you know, that can be very discouraging. And you can even become confused and think, am I just being legalistic or am I being, going overboard? don't think that. Jesus loves that you love spending time with him. He loves transforming your life. He loves working through you to impact others because that's what Christianity is. It's a relationship with him and sharing it with others through our words and our deeds. He says they're worthy. The word worthy is a cool word in the Greek. I love it. It means to bring the scales up until they're even. You know, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us all with spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And for three chapters, it tells us, this is who you are. This is what God's done for you now that you're saved. This is what you have in Christ. You're forgiven. You're adopted. You're washed. You're clean. All these things, you know? You've been brought into the family of God. These awesome things. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now, live up to your name. This is who you are. Balance the scales. Walk worthy of your name as Christian. And that's what he's saying they've done. It's not that, oh, they earned their way. You know, the, the being worthy here wasn't about doing anything in their own strength. It was about letting God's spirit change them into who they really were, who they were saved to be, right? Christians, those who follow Jesus. And Jesus continues this line of thought as he gives this closing promise to those who overcome He who overcomes, and we know that the overcomer is the one who's trusted Christ as Savior, the one who's following Jesus. He says, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. Now, how is that different from, didn't you already say that in verse four? They'll walk with me in white? Well, remember the promise in verse four is for those who are already being faithful in Sardis. Verse five applies to those who stay faithful and to those who do repent upon hearing this correction, those who return to their relationship with the Lord or those who come for the first time into this, having God's word be their authority and having the right attitude towards it and they are starting to live it out because that's what following Jesus looks like. God's word is our authority and we live it out, we follow it. That's what overcomers do. Jesus not only promises they'll be clothed in white, but he also promises I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The word there, I will not, means I will by no means, I will certainly not erase, eliminate, cancel his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. 
In the ancient world, cities kept a register of their citizens. And when a person died, their name would be removed from that register. So the language here that Jesus used, I will certainly not. That's meant to assure. It's, it's not meant to frighten, you know. In context, the idea is that if, if, if those in the church of Sardis repented, their return to purity, their return to the word of God, that would be no longer participating in all the immoral and luxurious celebrations that went on in Sardis. That would certainly offend the unbelievers now. They would lose their reputation in the city. But Jesus says, that's all good. They might drop you, but I'll never drop you. I'm not like that. I'll never blot your name out of the register of eternal life. And that's the only opinion that matters. That's the only person that counts what they think about you. Now, some people read this and they ask the question, so does this mean everyone's name starts off in the book of life, but they're blotted out when they die? You know, if they die in unbelief or in rebellion to God? I don't know that because the Bible doesn't tell us. Four other verses in Scripture, however, mention erasing someone's name from the book of life. So I do know this from reading that. I know Jesus isn't spending all of his time in heaven writing names down and then erasing them every time they sin. I know that for sure. I don't think these are good proof texts for it to be possible to lose your salvation. Because if you look at all these verses that talk about blotting someone's name out, there's a theme. And the theme is this. God wants your name in that book. He wants your name in that book. But resisting him keeps you from his grace of salvation that puts it in the book. That's the point. To those who haven't resisted the Lord but are following him, he says you never have to fear that Jesus will drop you. You might still blow it, you still might sin, but you never have to fear that Jesus will drop you. Isn't that a good promise? It's a great promise. You'll always have a good reputation with him because you're clothed in his righteousness. Well, verse 6, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. So my question for you, since church is, that means Calvary Chapel Orlando, us, you, all of us here today, are we listening? Are we listening? So as the worship team comes up, I want to leave you with a couple thoughts as we close out. You know, does the enemy frequently condemn you because of your struggles with sin? Listen, don't listen to him. Listen to your Savior, the one who says he holds you safely in his hands, the one who says that he will never drop you. Listen to that. Are you here today and are you resisting the Lord's message? Is your life very similar to the world? Are you governed by impurity while intellectually taking the name of a Christian? If that's you today, then repent. Listen to the Savior who loves you and wants to draw you close. Come to that right place with him. And then lastly, you know, are you here today and missing the work of God's Spirit in your marriage, in your family, in your witness, in your service for Christ? Then repent. You know, return to the authority of God's Word and, and then apply it to your life. The enemy wants to rip you off by all the other things he dangles in front of you. But Jesus wants to give you life on a different level. He's come that you might have abundant life. Let's all stand Lord, you know every heart today where we're at, that there may be some today who are recognizing, Lord, I'm not right with you. I'm not, I'm not saved. And Lord, would you let them know that he who comes to you, you will no wise cast out, that if they'll repent of their sins and put their trust in Christ, that they'll be saved, that you will wash their sins away, justify them, and begin this work of changing their lives. 
Lord, if there are those today who are lacking that power or lacking that purity in their lives, Lord, will you hear their prayer as they cry out to you and say, Lord, I'm, I'm coming back. You know, I am remembering. I remember what it was like the day I gave my life to you. I remember what it was like when I've, I, I, the word of God had that authority in my life that I wasn't always challenging it or ignoring it. I remember when I humbled myself and followed you. I'm returning to that. Lord, as someone's praying that right now, will you hear it? Will you fill them with your spirit? Will you remind them that they're forgiven and loved and embrace and that you will finish the work you've started in them? Lord, you know we need you desperately still, saved or unsaved. Rescue us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.